Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time of the Ben Jarowski Show. As I speak, it is Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. It's the day after the primary in the Granite State. There we go. Ten trivia points to the listener who can tell me what the Granite State is. I don't even know why they call it the Granite State. And I've been to New Hampshire. I guess there's a lot of granite there. Anyway, uh, the voters of New Hampshire uh, have spoken. God help us all. And (laughs) it looks as though based, uh, if they're into any indication of what's to come, and I think they are, uh, this election will come down to a rematch between Donald Trump and President Joe Biden. Wow. All right. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself, and we are going to take the deep dive. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Thanks, Ben. It is great to be here. I'm David Ferris, Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University here in Chicago, uh, columnist at Slate Newsweek, uh, and author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, now to be found in the fiction section of your local library. Um so, <laughs> and uh, granite. Okay, this is like this I can tell you, Ben, because my brother lives in New Hampshire, um, and he lives kind of in the middle of nowhere uh, in this property that requires a lot of like you know digging wells and stuff for for water and um, just you know a lot of personal attention to your dwelling that we don't really have to do here in Chicago. And the reason is a lot of the state is granite. Like when you're trying to dig the foundation of a house or something, you have to dig through granite. Um, and uh, I, I'm not saying that's everywhere. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, but there's a lot of rock in the state that makes uh, certain elements of home ownership, shall we say, somewhat more complicated than they are here in Chicago. Um, and uh, so that's why they call it the granite state. Look, if you're a political writer, you have to have more than one way to refer to a state, right? I'm like, you can't just be like, New Hampshire, New Hampshire, New Hampshire, New Hampshire. Right. It's like it's like how wonderful it is that there is a nickname for the Republicans called the GOP. Um, And we don't have that for Democrats. You just have to say Democrats, Democrats, Democrats all over, like over and over and over again, which which sucks. (laughs) Well, uh, you could actually there's a new name for the Republican Party. It's the MAGA Party. Let's be honest. Uh, MAGA has completely uh, taken over and MAGA is an all encompassing word. It means absolutely everything politically related to Donald Trump. Uh, and I think it's uh, time we all acknowledge the reality uh, that um, Donald Trump is, it's going to sound so obvious as soon as I say it, uh, one of the most significant political forces in American life. Uh, well, definitely in this century. It's mind blowing that I'm saying this, David. Uh, at first, I thought it was just like a blip. First, we all treated it, him like a joke. Uh, but it's clear, I hate to use the word articulate, uh, but it's clear that he has articulated a worldview that's um, very appealing to American voters. It's, it's no avoiding it anymore. Uh, here in Chicago, for instance, uh, when uh, 
the issue of resettling Venezuelan migrants came up. There were people who would show up at meetings on the South Side, black neighborhoods, Hispanic neighborhoods, and they would sound positively Trumpian by uh, chanting and bellowing, no, you know, build a wall, send them back. You got Hispanics who, who have, I don't know how long they've been in Chicago, uh, chanting, send them back. And it's just a preposterous state on one on hand. But um, uh, before we take the deep dive into New Hampshire, your general thoughts on the Trumpian political movement. Well, sure. I mean, this thing has... It's more than just that it has staying power at this point. I mean, the Trumpian political movement has dominated our politics for going on nine years now. Um, and it's obviously going to be 10. Um, and I think that no matter what happens to Donald Trump, the style of politics that he has created, the political movement that he has um, he has put into being and, um, and watched over for years and nurtured in his own weird, unfatherly way, um, it's not going anywhere. I mean, like Trump could be vaporized from the face of the earth tomorrow morning and there'd be 15 or 20 people ready to pick up the baton because the style of politics that he um, that he advocates for and that he represents is obviously more popular than anybody could have imagined eight years ago. Um, and I, I think it is fundamentally an authoritarian political movement with authoritarian political impulses. It may it may feast on ordinary um, sort of ordinary politics, right? Like the politics of immigration, um, even a even a kind of like a harsh politics of immigration or a reactionary politics of immigration, isn't necessarily authoritarian, right? I mean, like democratic societies have the right to conclude that they want to close the border, or whatever, right? It's not like it's outside of the realm of democratic contestation. Um, what's unique about Trump um, is that he is more or less promising uh, a, like a light dictatorship if he comes back into power. Right? He's referred to himself as a dictator, you know, is it half jokingly, but is it really um, he's promising to use the Insurrection Act to put down any protest to follow his potential victory? Um, and, his, you know, the various things that he said, right? Like, I'm going to set aside the Constitution. Um, I'm going to prosecute Joe Biden. You know, uh, these are all uh, these are all authoritarian promises. And I think it's worth keeping in mind um, that the appeal of authoritarianism is not a mystery. Okay. The appeal of authoritarianism is timeless, right? And I, I think people, uh, make the mistakes a Yale political scientist named Jennifer Gandhi, um, who writes about this stuff. And she made a really good point recently. Um, she said, when we think about authoritarianism, we imagine like a small group, like a small cabal of like evil people. And they're constantly at war with society, all of society, like everybody's against them and they're clinging to power um, use, using violence to get their way. And that's not really how tyranny works. Um, tyranny works by safeguarding the interests of one group of people over the other. It is the vehicle um, by which one segment of society can continue to place itself on top of a hierarchy over other people in that society. Right? Um, and so the appeal of Trumpism is precisely that he is offering an authoritarian solution to ordinary political problems, right? It's like, oh, you've lost the popular vote in the last seven, seven of the last eight presidential elections. Well, have I got great news for you, right? Vote for me and you don't have to worry about this stuff anymore. Like, I will protect the place of white men atop this hierarchy, uh, right? Like I will reverse um, whatever changes have been made to, to American demographics um, by uprooting and, and expelling um, migrants and closing the border and, and all this stuff, right? It's not that the policies, it's not that the specific policies are necessarily authoritarian. I mean, I think that they're reactionary. I think they're on the far right of a, of a possible small D democratic spectrum. Um, it's that he's offering the illusion of permanence to his supporters. You know, like you choose me and I will permanently protect you from the consequences of democratic politics. Right? And that's the thing I think we have to focus on in this election, not necessarily looking back to, to January 6th and all the outrages of his presidency, but looking forward to what he's promising to do to us in the future. I think that people need to made to be like inhabit the consequences of the, of the, of a Trump presidency, a second Trump presidency, which I think is going to be quite dire. So yeah, Mac is with us, Ben, you know, it commands the support of, you know, 30, 40% of the population. There's another 20% that'll go along with whatever Republican you put up there. Um, and, uh, 
you know, that means the stalemate continues. It's going to be another close election and the stakes are incredibly high, unfortunately. Uh, I'm going to go back in something that you began that riff with uh, and then ask you to follow up on that. Uh, you said if uh, Trump uh, is to depart the scene, uh, Trumpism will, li- will live, authoritarianism will live. Uh, and um, I can believe that uh, in its most abstract form. But when I look at their, uh, the specifics, I see that Trumpism has not really translated well for other politicians. So, for instance, the most obvious case, and I'd love to hear your riff on this, uh, the rise and fall of Ron DeSantis, who was supposed to be, I, I mean, it, it, David, things changed so fast. It was December of 2022 in the aftermath of the midterms that every talking head was proclaiming, oh, this is the future of the Republican Party. This man just demonstrated in Florida how you could take Trumpism uh, and what was the term? Like, make it pragmatic. He could get something done. He's more, I remember liberals, he's more dangerous than Trump because he can get something done. And (laughs) I mean, here we are in uh, 2024 and the man is uh, a punchline to a joke. Uh, So I would say that authoritarianism as a concept is very much a part of Trumpism, but Donald Trump himself, the personality uh, is the chief selling point. Your thoughts? I th- I think that Trump is integral to the appeal of, of MAGA, right? And I think that other politicians have had some trouble reproducing it. I don't know that the DeSantis story is necessarily, you know, solid proof that Trumpism can't work without Trump. I mean, DeSantis had a number of problems, including that that the guy that he was like slavishly imitating is still running for president, you know? Um, And so it it was like, if you go to, you know, uh, unless you're uh, someone who has chosen never to drink again or something for for reasons, it's like going to a restaurant and ordering the mocktail instead of the cocktail, right? It's like, why would I order Trump light when I can have Trump heavy, you know, with Trump himself? Um, and, and DeSantis was never able to distinguish himself from Trump apart from like a handful of like, you know, issues that I think are at this point inconsequential to the Republican base. And that's like, you know, I didn't shut down as much as the other states did. And, you know, I don't know, like, what was the, what was the rest of the policy case, right? Um, there was a lot of ideological overlap between DeSantis and Trump, and he was never willing to go after him directly and say like, he's bad for the party. Right. Like we don't like authoritarianism, right? Because DeSantis couldn't make those arguments because he doesn't fundamentally agree with them. Okay. Um, and so given the choice between Trump and someone imitating Trump, they just went with Trump, um, a former president. And um, I think there's another factor here, which is, again, take Trump out of the equation altogether. Um, a, a defeated former president running for the nomination again is something we, we have not actually seen in the binding primary era that began in 1972 with the McGovern Fraser reforms. Um, and I think that what we discovered <laughs> is that a defeated former president trying to get the nomination again would be pretty formidable. Um, and that doesn't even, that doesn't have to be just Donald Trump. Um, imagine if, if Obama had lost in 2012, um, you know, there's well, was like you know, 400,000 votes and a handful of States gone the other way. He, he would have lost. Um, and he had decided to seek the party's nomination again in 2016. He, he would be he would be formidable. He would have been formidable. He may very well have walked away with the nomination um, because Democrats loved him. Um, not all Democrats. Right. And of course, with the fullness of time, uh, I think there's there's plenty to critique about the Obama presidency. But um, but fundamentally, he was popular with Democrats in the same way that Trump is popular with Republicans. Um, and so. You give you give the guy the name ID, the fame, the status as the former president, the belief among Republican partisans that he was a good president and that the election was stolen from him. It's not a huge surprise that he's walking away with this thing, you know, um, and I don't know that we can issue a verdict on Trumpism without Trump until we actually are without Trump. Um, and then we'll see uh, then, then then we'll see politicians sort of like aping him and um imitating his mannerisms and his style of politics and his authoritarian promises. And we'll see how that does with the electorate. Um, but more traditional Republicans have simply not been able to gain any traction within the party. Right? And that's not just about the presidency. That's about um, pe- people winning and losing primaries in Congress. 
Um, the Trumpist candidates have been much more successful than than others, you know, not uniformly across the board, but they've done very well in internal Republican politics. Um, and, you know, I mean, they haven't done that great nationally, but like neither has Trump, <laughs> you know, like Trump has lost. I mean, Nikki Haley pointed this out last night. She was like, he's lost four consecutive national elections, folks. You want to make it five? You know, 16, 18, 20, 22. Um, the only reason that we think of him as a successful politician as all, at all is the fluke of the Electoral College in 2016. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Wait, we'll so what she said he's he's lost. Say that again. How many? She's like, every time, you know, Trump is a loser, right? Like 16, 18, 20, and 22. Oh, yeah. Okay? Like, mm -hmm. if you think of 16 as a loss because he lost yeah. the vote. <laughs> That's four straight national elections in which Trump was the party leader and the Republicans either lost comprehensively or did much worse than expected or they should have done. Um, and I, while they may not lose the election, I, I do think that they'll do worse with Trump at the top of the ticket than they would with like literally anybody else in the party. Yeah. By the way, I, w I was thinking about uh, you put something in my mind that I hadn't thought about <laughs> if, if a, uh, a Democrat <laughs> tried to do what Trump did. After, and losing. So the only one uh, in uh, post-72 who would qualify would be Jimmy Carter. I can't in a million years imagine Jimmy Carter running for re-election, not just because Ronald Reagan was popular, but because of the kind of character Jimmy Carter is, as opposed to Donald Trump. So Jimmy Carter, follow me on this, David. He took that as sort of uh, uh, like a failure of his. It was his failure. And then he was going to rectify his life and lead a better life uh, to sort of compensate for his failure. Donald Trump <laughs> said it was stolen from him. He, he, the power of denial in Donald Trump uh, is truly, it's, it's awe-inspiring on one level. And the only Democrat I can think of who comes close to it, uh, and they're very similar, I think, uh, in in this regard is Bill Clinton. The power of denial in Bill Clinton and his willfulness and his love of self in his twisted way is right up there. It's Trumpian. Uh, he's just a little more skillful. Go ahead. You have, I, your thoughts. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think the key, I mean, obviously Carter didn't run in 84, right? He backed his own vice president, um, Walter Mondale, unlike Trump who ran against his own vice president and beat him. <laughs> before the race even started. Um, but we used to have this thing in American politics called like shame and accountability. Um, and when you lose a national election for your party, generally speaking, you pack up and disappear. Um, and so there's not a lot of precedent for a defeated one-term president to conclude uh, that they were robbed of their second term and to convince all of their followers that they should have another crack at it. Um, Jimmy Carter didn't run in 1984 for the very simple reason that the entire party blamed him for 1980. Um, it regarded him as an ineffective president. You know, I, I happen to think he was a better president than he's remembered as, but, um, but certainly at the time it, it was not a credible, like if Carter had been like, you know what, I'm going to run against Mondale in 84. Like it just wouldn't have been a credible threat. People have been like, get out of here, man. You lost like 500, you know, like you lost almost every state to Ronald Reagan. Like, no, go away. Um, and so Trump simply doesn't have that impulse. The impulse that a lot of us have where we're like, hmm, maybe I was wrong about this, you know, or <laughs> um, I've made a mistake or I, 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 you know, I cost people I care about something. Um, I, I cost the Republican Party the presidency and I, I'm going to just uh, I'm going to disappear from political life and you can haul me out when you need me on the campaign trail. But otherwise, I'm going to go away. He doesn't. That's not him. You know, that's not him. That's not what he did. Um, and uh, I think it's an instructive lesson in how powerful a former president could be if they ran again. Yeah. Uh, uh, all right. Let's uh, let's dissect these results a little bit. Uh, Nikki Haley, I'm doing something I had got, or the anti-Trump vote combined was roughly 46% in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, I think it was roughly the same thing in the Iowa caucus. Uh, so 46% is uh, voting against the um, the president who's effectively running for re-election, if you view it just as a party thing. Uh, so historically, what does that mean going forward? Look, it depends on how you look at Trump. 
Okay, if you look at Trump as an as effectively an incumbent, right? Um, he's actually doing much worse than any incumbent president has ever done in a primary before. Um, you know, you're you're right to point out um, that Trump won 51 percent in Iowa, and um, the rest of the vote, 49 percent, went to other candidates. Um, in in New Hampshire, uh, he won 54.4, and uh, Haley won 43. Uh, so yeah, the rest of the candidates add up to about 46, 45, 46. Um, and, and I, what it means for the primary this year is that Trump is almost certainly going to win, right? It's very hard to see a scenario in which he loses the nomination. Um, and that's a reality we're going to have to start dealing with. Right? But if you look at it as like, what's the verdict on a president that the Republican rank and file regards as an incumbent who was unfairly deprived of his victory, it's not a sign of strength that these other candidates are doing so well. It's, it's kind of a sign of weakness that there's enough doubt um, and second guessing and skepticism about Trump within the Republican Party um, that non-Trump candidates are pulling roughly half the vote in the early states. Um, that, to me, is a signal that the Republican electorate is nervous or at least a, a substantial share of the Republican electorate is nervous about the choice they're about to make. Um, and just going back to, you know, the MAGA movement itself, right? If we're talking about half of the Republican party, then we're talking about a movement that's about a quarter of the country. You know, they seem to have a, a bare majority or at least a plurality of the Republican party, and they can steamroll through the primaries and caucuses and get that nomination. The big question is like, how's that going to translate in the general election? Um, how are the Republicans who don't support Trump going to behave in, in October and November of this coming year? Right. History says they'll all mostly come home, but I'm not so sure in this case, you know, um, I'm not so sure that they will. And he can't afford to lose a significant slice of that Republican electorate in the same way that Biden can't afford to lose uh, a significant slice of the Democratic electorate in the form of like frustrated progressives who, who are thinking about staying home or voting third party. So I think we have a very fluid election with two candidates who have not um, locked down their own base, who were unpopular, disliked, facing competition from, from other candidates, third-party candidates. We don't actually know how many yet because the ballot process is still ongoing. But I wouldn't be surprised if Kennedy was on all 50 states, and I wouldn't be surprised if you know Joe Manchin was in there and Cornell West and whatever nutcase the libertarians are going to run. Um, it's going to be... At this, I'm starting to consider any poll that's just Biden-Trump to be not super helpful for us. You know, I think they need to, I think they need to start polling these other candidates um, and thinking about the shape of a four or five way race for president when the two major party nominate, the two major party candidates are broadly disliked, um, you know, viewed with suspicion by a significant chunk of their own primary electorates. Um and in which, you know, to turn out, like a lot of these things, turnout models, it's all going to go out the window. It's, it's going to be, from a political science perspective, Ben, very fascinating election. From a human being perspective, <laughs> um, I'm not yeah. very excited about this yeah. at all. <laughs> uh, no, and uh, uh, in terms of uh, not having the support of significant chunks uh, of their party. It's worth noting that uh, the chunk of, of Biden's party that he doesn't have the support is the left side. And uh, the chunk that uh, that Trump doesn't have of the Republican Party is also from their left side. And I got that in quotes. Uh, but I guess you would say the moderate wing of the party is the left <laughs> wing of a party with virtually no left hand. So uh, but whatever, that's the point I'm making, which brings us to Nikki Haley. So uh, she is now 101 against Trump uh, and uh, got, what, 45 percent of the vote yesterday uh, and has vowed to stay uh, in the race for to which she has just been like mocked, maligned uh, by Donald Trump, taunted to typical Trump uh, behavior. Do you, your thoughts on uh, Nikki Haley's future? Uh, do, do you think she uh, is going to stick this out to the, the end? Or do you think she's going to uh, drop because of the pressure? Is she going to become like a martyr? Like, is she going to openly embrace the Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney uh, sort of you know style of defying Donald Trump for the good of humanity? Where do you think she's heading now? 
you know, candidates at this stage um, who uh, are not winning the primary, according to early results, but promise to stay in, are always going to say that they're in it for the long haul. You know, they're not like, well, we're going to stay. We'll see tomorrow morning how we feel in the morning. I'll see if we feel like doing this anymore in the morning. Uh, she's like, no, we're staying in. Um, but I got to tell you, like, coming in second in a two-person race is not the position that you want to be in. Right. I think the theory of the case for Nikki Haley was always like come in a closer second in Iowa. Um, and then she came in third and then use that, that surprising second place finish in Iowa to slingshot her way to victory in New Hampshire. Um, and the fact that she came in third in, in Iowa and fell short in New Hampshire means that the whole theory of the case is like a little bit discombobulated. Right. Now I will point out, that in very, very recent history, we saw a candidate lose not just Iowa and New Hampshire, but also Nevada. Um, that's Joe Biden in 2020 and then come back to win the whole thing. But um, so I, I'm not ready to to statistically pronounce the thing dead yet. But I think narratively, it's close to dead. I think the difference in, between Republicans and Democrats in 2020 versus 2024 um, is that there wasn't like there wasn't a huge ideological gulf between Biden and the other candidates in this race. You know, like there wasn't a big like meta issue, you know, an issue hanging all over all of the other issues that divided, that divided Biden from the other candidates, right? Like, um, you know, Pete, there's hardly any ideological space between like Pete Buttigieg and Biden between Amy Klobuchar and Biden, right? The big ideological schism in the party was between Biden supporters and Sanders supporters. Um, and even then, I think that there was a there was a lot more overlap in terms of what those voters wanted than there is between a like I say like a hardcore Nikki Haley voter and a, and a hardened MAGA person. Um, and, and the reality is, like you know, I, I think Biden just has these people outnumbered. I mean, sorry, I, the Trump has his his adversaries outnumbered in a way that like Bernie Sanders did not after his three victories um, early on in the in those contests. Um, you know, there are fewer candidates in the Republican race, uh, and Trump is just more of a known quantity than Sanders was. Um, I've seen some pretty good research that suggests, um, that a lot of the, the fears about COVID and, um, you know, the nervousness that people were feeling in February, 2020 translated into, I said one political scientist called it a flight to safety and like grandpa Joe was safety. Um, and we simply don't have that dynamic in the Republican Party. Like there is, there's not going to be some, I mean, I hope not. <laughs> I hope there's not going to be some external event um, that that fundamentally alters the calculus of this race by imposing suffering on all of humanity like COVID-10. <laughs> so, um, I, it's just, it, you know, it's something that big is probably not going to happen between now and Super Tuesday. You never know, right? Um, but in terms of Haley, the only reason I could see her staying past South Carolina, which is, it looks like she's going to lose that too, pretty decisively. The only reason I could say to, to Haley to stay in would be like, just hang around and collect delegates um, because something could happen to this guy. He's ancient. Um, he makes no sense. He, he could be convicted of something between now <laughs> and the convention. So if I'm Nikki Haley and someone is willing to keep writing me checks, why not just stick around? collect second place delegates. And then if something happens to Trump, you were best positioned to get the nomination. Um, I mean, it's just like, what else does she have to do? You know, she's not a sitting governor or anything. So keep running, Nikki, you know, keep at it. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that is sound advice. Uh, uh, and, uh, and also I'm, I'm laughing as I'm saying this, there's also a possibility that the Supremes will bump Trump off from the ballot. I mean, I wouldn't bet on it. Uh, in fact, uh, David, I was thinking of you when I was reading the arguments advanced by uh, Trump's lawyers in a brief regarding the Colorado case. And that, of course, ladies and gentlemen, is the case coming out of Colorado where the Supreme, uh, uh, the Supremes of Colorado voted four to three to uh, bump Trump off the ballot. David talked at length about this in his last appearance uh, on the grounds that he was led an insurrection and that it violates the 14th Amendment. 
It sure does. He should be gone. But of course, they won't have the guts. But uh, the argument put forth by uh, Trump's lawyers, which I could pro- I could just see Clarence Thomas nodding his head, which is this is not an insurrection. This was a case of free speech. He was pointing out uh, his concerns that there was fraud in the election. Uh, it's his constitutional right to speak his mind. Uh, then then they threw out a bone to Gorsuch. Uh, along the lines of it doesn't s- specifically say president in the, uh, the uh, part of the 14th Amendment uh, on insurrection. So therefore, uh, if you're just a by the word guy, uh, you can't kick him out. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is perfect. I could see Gorsuch taking that. I could see Thomas taking the other. <laughs> Robert's hiding under a table, pretending it's it's all you. Yeah. And Donald Trump stays in the ballot. I was thinking of you when I was reading that brief, but it's still a chance. Okay, David. By the way, before we move on to Joe Biden, have you changed your attitude whatsoever? Uh, Do you think there's any you think that there's any more of a chance in your mind now that the Supremes will rule against Trump on Colorado? I've always thought there was a chance, you know, um, because, you know, my argument is that the Supreme Court is invested in conservative political power and they and that they don't necessarily regard Donald Trump. Not only do they not regard Trump as integral to conservative political power, that they may they may see him as uh, detrimental to conservative political power. Right. So it is within the realm of possibility that three of those conservatives will join uh, will join with the liberals. Sorry, they just need two, two of the conservatives to join with the liberals um, and uphold the Colorado decision. Now, they could do something interesting like be like, well, it's, I don't know, the states can do what they want. You know, we're not going to rule one way or the other. In other words, they won't conclusively stop the movement to throw them off the ballot, but they also won't tell the rest of the states that they have to do it too. You know, I could see, I could see, an, I could see a ruling where they're like, oh, yeah, Colorado, I mean, we don't, I know this is weird, but Colorado can do whatever they want. Um, and that would, op- that would also open up some space for Haley, right? So if there's the number of states that could successfully bar Trump from the primary ballot. As that goes up, right, there's one, two, three, four, five states that Haley can win. Um, and it might provide a little bit of ballast to her sort of practical argument against Trump, um, which is like, do you really want a guy with like a zillion indictments and, and all this baggage as the nominee? Um, you know, that's a path. That's why I, if I'm Haley, I wouldn't drop out at least until the Supremes rule on this. Um, because if they give an adverse ruling to Donald Trump, you don't want to have to restart your campaign, right? Ask Ross Perot how that went. Remember in 92? Yeah. He was leading the polls. Yeah. And then he was like, nah, never mind. I'm out of here. Um, and then he came back in like, you know, August of the election year. Still did pretty well, but we'll, you know, we'll always have to guess about how that could have gone if he hadn't dropped out. But what's DeSantis going to be like? Never mind. Uh, I'm back. <laughs> well, he did only suspend his campaign. Yeah. By the way, I'm just... Uh, when you were riffing on the, the you, there's still a possibility that the Supremes would uphold the Colorado. I was just smiling at the 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 way Nikki Haley would handle that. Inside, she would be jubilant. Oh yeah, she would be instantly the front runner, but she would have to denounce the ruling in order to keep Maggie in line. It would be one of the greatest acting jobs. She just she would be expressing outrage at how the Supremes have, you know, intervened in the democratic process while inside she'd be going, yes, yeah. thank you, Supremes. <laughs> what a, oh, Lord. I mean, you just, like, like if Biden died, you know, Harris would have to be like, wow, what a dark day, you know, but internally she'd be like, fuck, yes. I am the president, <laughs> right? I can be president. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. All right. Let's You mentioned Joe Biden. Let's get to Joe Biden. He was victorious yesterday, too. Uh, and, and this is where, like, the world of politics, as it's played out, is so convoluted uh, that sometimes, I, like, I know a part of the role I play is to just literally explain things to people, but it, it like makes no sense. So for instance, just my favorite one, the electoral college makes no sense. There's nothing like it in any realm, any realm, anything, any world of sports, nothing, uh, finance, nothing. So, uh, 
Joe Biden was victorious in New Hampshire because of a write-in vote. David, please explain that to people so they'll understand it. Like, why would the sitting president, who is virtually unchallenged, there's some minor, very minor people running whose names I haven't even dedicated to memory. That's how insignificant they are. Even I have not dedicated their name to memory. Maybe you have. Um, why would he need to win by a write-in vote? Explain the peculiarities of the Democratic Party to the world so they can understand them. Yeah, so this one's a doozy. Okay, so <laughs> the role of Iowa and New Hampshire in the nominating process has become very controversial inside the Democratic Party. In fact, it kind of always has been, right? These are two states that are not representative of the Democratic coalition, they're small. They're otherwise, with all apologies to my brother, kind of marginal, um, you know, smaller rural states. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure the people that live there are, are lovely, right? But, like, the fact that, like, Iowa and New Hampshire get to get to have such an outsized role in the process has always rubbed voters in the rest of the states the wrong way. Um, and this is not true for Republicans. Republicans don't care. They're like, this is fine. You know, a bunch of white people in the middle of nowhere. This sounds great. It's exactly our coalition. So, um, uh, so what happened, um, after the 2020 primary campaign is that the fiasco in Iowa, remember the election night fiasco where they couldn't figure out who the winner was, um, got Iowa demoted, right? Like every four years, the, the Democrats put together a commission, uh, and, adjust the primary schedule, right? The sequencing of the primaries has always been a hot topic inside the Democratic Party in a way that is not in the GOP. Um, and Biden's people, and this is also something that's happened over and over again, is that an incumbent president effectively takes over the DNC um, and then tries to sequence the primaries in a way that they think will be maximally beneficial to them. And so Biden's big fear was that was a challenge from the progressive left. Okay. Um, and in addition to the ideological argument against Iowa and New Hampshire, he figured that this ideological leftist would be able to do well in New Hampshire and then pose a threat to his reelection campaign. And so they engineered the primary schedule to have South Carolina go first. The problem is that there is a state law in New Hampshire that can only be changed by the legislature and the governor that says that New Hampshire has to be the first in the nation primary, not caucus, primary. Okay. Um, so the Democratic Party demoted New Hampshire. New Hampshire was like, you can't do that to us. Um, and the, and the, and the DNC was like, basically didn't want Biden competing in New Hampshire because New Hampshire had in their view defied them, even though the New Hampshire Democrats didn't do anything wrong here. Right. Uh, because they don't control, they don't control the state. They couldn't move the primary if they wanted to. Um, so that's the background, right? The background is that Biden, uh, as a matter of principle, decided not to compete in this primary. Um, and and the and the party has like sanctioned New Hampshire for not changing its rules, even though they they couldn't under current circumstances. Um, all of which I was fine with, right? Like I want Iowa and New Hampshire gone from their role in this process as much as anybody does. Okay, the big mistake that I think the Biden people made was that they then decided they needed to win New Hampshire anyway. You know, it was like New Hampshire's having this like essentially unsanctioned primary. Um. And the Biden people should have just, I guess, followed through on their initial instinct and just be like, let Dean Phillips, whoever that is, win the primary. God bless him. It's not going to change anything. Um, but they panicked and they were like, oh, my God, like we can't have any more bad press for Joe Biden. We better have people write in his name so that he wins the New Hampshire Democratic primary. And people are like, wait, first of all, I don't think we were having a primary. We have an incumbent president, but wait, but it also doesn't count. But also you have to write him in. Like, what is going on here? They created a maximally confusing problem for themselves, you know, that I think obviously they could have avoided by just like not moving New Hampshire out of its slot. Um, but I do think that they wanted to get that done, which they did, but then they, they chickened out of, of the stare down effectively allowed New Hampshire to win by having Biden people encourage his voters to write him in, which they then did. Um, but still, I mean, this guy, Dean Phillips, um, uh, pulled, you know, like 20% of the vote which is not the greatest of looks for Biden either. So it was really a lose, 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 yeah. lose situation for Biden in New Hampshire. 
Well, I could tell you, for having watched Chicago politics for all these years, they write in campaigns are very challenging and very difficult. Uh, so I would argue uh, winning with, with, what do you get, what, like 80% of the vote is quite a quite an achievement. You get that many people to write your name in, that's something. I mean, and here in Illinois, I don't know if you know this, there's a whole, there's procedures. They make, they make, they don't make it easy to write in it, okay? There's like a hurdle or two you have to, uh, so... But I would point out, you know, when you were riffing there, I was thinking, imagine a world, okay, so this is really speculative, I, I, I admit that going in, where uh, a candidate named Robert or Bobby Kennedy Jr. was not a vaccine denier. He was just Bobby Kennedy Jr. running as a Democrat with the legacy to baby boomers of um, the Kennedy lore, uh, and then just not being Joe Biden. I think he may have won New Hampshire. Yeah. Flat out, one-on-one. And, or if not, it would have been very embarrassing. But then we would see, like, the different ways that press spins it. So one more time, Donald Trump got 54% of the vote over Nikki Haley, a resounding victory, it's called, in the New York Times. Uh, if Joe Biden had prevailed in my scenario over baby Bobby Kennedy with 54 percent, the same New York Times would say troubles for Biden campaign, which just reaffirms everything I said about the New York Times. When it comes to pol- political coverage, they're absolutely worthless. It's all about clicks for them. Uh, but do you follow what I'm saying? Like what for Trump as a resounding victory would be viewed as a staggering weakness from Biden. And right now, David, I could see it. Joe Biden, to put it mildly and to I mean, state the obvious, is exceedingly unpopular among Democrats. Uh, the Democratic base, I guess you could call it. Uh, in fact, I'm trying to think. You, you know this better than I would. In this century, has any incumbent gone into a re-election cycle as unpopular with his base as Joe Biden? This century? No, for sure. Um, I mean, even in 2020, Donald Trump had the more or less unquestioned support of the Republican base. Um, I, I, I think your point about if Kennedy was a normal Kennedy <laughs> is well taken, right? Because he's not a normal Kennedy. He's also no longer running in the Democratic primary. Um, as, but if, if you, right, if you took a, a just a, a garden variety Kennedy, what's the one in Massachusetts? Is it Joe? Joe. Yeah. Um, like a garden variety Kennedy with the nice cheekbones and the and the family name and all that jazz, um, and like normal Democratic politics um, had challenged Biden, I think we'd be having a different conversation. I also think any prominent Democrat who had chosen to to challenge Biden for this nomination would be getting a lot more traction than I think that they all thought when they decided not to do it over the summer. Okay, I think there was a period over the summer, um, you know, uh, where and I think reinforced, but again, by the 2023 November election results, I, the, the narrative took shape that like, well, people say they don't like Biden, but like we keep doing pretty well in these elections. Right. And so there must be under the hood. He must be fine. Um, and they didn't want to take the step of like making themselves dead to the institutional Democratic Party by challenging Biden. Right. Um, it's another way in which Democrats just have like way more party discipline than, than Republicans do. Um, but I'm kind of regretful. I'm not me personally. <laughs> I, I wish that someone had done it. I wish that someone with a, a little bit of stature had just gone ahead and challenged Biden. You know, whether that's like, I don't particularly like him, but but Gavin Newsom of California or Pritzker or or, or Whitmer, um, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of, of Michigan, uh, or some senator with with um, who's not regarded as a as a an extremist or something, you know, like Chris Murphy of Connecticut. I think any normal Democrat who had previously been in good standing with the party establishment would have been a real threat to Biden, not just in New Hampshire, but everywhere. Um, because the, the, the poll numbers that we've been seeing over the last three or four months are grim. I think much grimmer than anybody inside the Biden campaign or anybody that considered challenging him could ever have imagined that they would be at this point. Um, and it's, I think it's a missed opportunity for someone to have not put the campaign architecture in place 
to be able to seize on that weakness and maybe save us all the catastrophe of a Trump presidency by by getting Biden out of the way, who couldn't be convinced to get out of the way on his own. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. Well, I uh, I'll just close with this uh, because this should probably be a topic for a whole show. And I've avoided this topic because, as I've said to you the last time, I don't want to reduce the slaughter that's going on in Gaza to American political, uh, the impact in the American political process. But it's anyone who is running against Joe Biden would have to figure out a position to uh, take on the war in the Middle East, the war between uh, Israel and uh, Palestine, Palestine uh, in a, such a way as to either galvanize that uh, the leftist wing of the Democratic Party uh, that's opposed to just allowing Israel to do whatever it wants uh, or, um, you know, stand with Israel, which is what Joe Biden is choosing to do. And he's uh, paying a political price for that. Uh, and uh, I don't know anyone who could do that. I mean, you called it uh, a wedge issue at one point. It's like the wedgiest of all wedge issues. And again, I'd hate to reduce what's going on there to a wedge issue in in, uh, Democratic politics. But I don't know how anyone, baby Bobby Kennedy, like his position, for what it's worth, is very pro-Israel. I don't know if anybody knows that. I'm the only guy in the world who follows these things. Uh, So that would alienate uh, a good chunk of the Democratic base. Um, if AOC were to run, let's say, uh, with a, 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 a position that's very sympathetic uh, to Palestinians, uh, that would alienate this uh, like the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. So, you know, that's that's a huge that's a huge split, uh, David. And I don't know how at this stage, I don't know how anybody. Uh, could bring that together. I don't know how Joe Biden's going to pull it off uh, come November, but then, of course, who knows what the world will look like in November. Uh, but that's how I see it. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I have something coming out with Slate about this, I think, today. Um, that's just like, you know, what Democratic partisans need to see is not necessarily a detailed white paper about where exactly they think the border between Israel and Palestine should lie or extremely specific proposals about how to bring peace to the region. I think they need to have a sense that the president of the United States wants to bring an end to the killing. I actually suggested a catchphrase for him, Ben. I was like, this is what Biden should say on the campaign trail right now. We're going to end the killing in Israel and Gaza, right? Um, take a page out of Trump and just and just have like a an empty slogan that people can fill in with whatever they want. Um And I think it would actually be pretty easy for Biden to pivot from this uncritical embrace of Israel, which is obviously soured behind the scenes, right? Like he and Netanyahu are not even talking Um, to pivot from that to convincing your own base that you care about whether Palestinian civilians live or die Um, and to put the full force of your administration behind pressuring the Israelis and Hamas to do what they need to do to bring an end to this. Because that's what the Democrats need, right? And happily, what the Democrats need also has to, happens to be the right thing to do. You know, like I remember in my book, I talked about statehood for Puerto Rico and people were like, so this is just to benefit the Democrats? And I was like, no, of course not. <laughs> like, like, obviously it should be an intentional process driven by, by Puerto Ricans um, and they must make this choice. Uh, it's It's a free choice. It's up to them if they want independence, they want the status quo or they want statehood. But if they choose statehood, we should embrace it, not only because it would be better for the island, but because it would be better for the party. And here's a case where it's like, obviously, stopping the killing would be better for Israelis and Palestinians than, than continuing to, to have this, um, this, this grinding war that's killed 25,000 Palestinian civilians. Um, you have uh, Israelis out there saying they're going to create a six-tenth of a mile buffer zone all along the Gaza border in which they're going to raise all of the houses permanently uh, and create a security zone, right? And it's like, this is the kind of thing that Biden needs to be pushing back on. So you can't just go there and and unilaterally alter the boundaries between you and a a territory that you already occupy and have effectively imprisoned for the last 15 years. Um, That's not going to work. That doesn't have any 
constituency in the United States, right? Um, and it, it's it's good for coalition management. It's good for the conflict itself to start drawing some lines and be like, you can't do this. You can't do this without jeopardizing the aid. Um, and if he's not willing to do that, and to this point, it doesn't seem like he is, he's going to pay a price with with uh, with the Democratic left. He just is. Now, maybe they think they can win anyway, and maybe they can. Um, but to me, I just think that there's low-hanging fruit here. Um, you know, you don't have to, like, reverse your position on Israel uh, to communicate to the base that you care about about stopping this. I actually believe they, to your last point, I'm sure they have thought this thing through. Guarantee these political junkies uh, that surround Joe Biden have thought it through and they're convinced they can win without the left. Uh, they're convinced they could win without uh, a huge uh, turnout in the black community. Uh, they're convinced that the dynamic that you've been articulating, you've been explaining for all these uh, months, is just going to become uh, uh, more pronounced. And that is where uh, independent minded, I got that in quotes, white people drift toward the Democrats uh, and um, suburban voters, whatever you want to call them. Uh, Suburban moms, soccer moms. I've heard so many different little buzzwords for them. You know, uh, David Axelrod, Rahm's, Emanuel's uh, favorite voting base, swing voters in the suburbs of uh, Virginia and Wisconsin. And I think they, I think they view that uh, as their as their base. Uh, they're going to cultivate it. I think they think they can win. Yeah, your thoughts to close. I understand why they think that, right? I do. But if I'm the Biden people, the polling of the last three months should be the wake up call that in fact, you might not win without the left. Okay. You put the 2020 coalition back together, you win handily because the 2020 coalition is even larger than it was. It just demographic churn. Um, and what's, what's really costing Biden in the polling right now is that massive lack of enthusiasm among the democratic base for his candidacy. Yeah. It's not entirely driven by Israel, right? But Israel is the most obvious thing that could actually be addressed between now and the election to bring people back on board. Um, and if they're not willing to, to even really try to do that, that's a level of stubbornness that um, that could really have dire consequences for all of us. So, Joe, if you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> please engage in some coalition management. Um, do the right thing for Palestinians and Israelis and also do the right thing for us. Please try to bring this thing to a conclusion. Yeah. When you said that ending killing, I just thought a piece at hand. This is way before your time, but that was Nixon in 68. Uh, I uh, talk about the Vietnam War and you talk about a vague, empty slogan, but it sure helped that in him sabotaging uh, the uh, Paris peace talks, which is be a topic for another time. I'm not going to take that deep dive. Uh, but I still can't believe you got away with it. Uh, all right, David, thank you very much. And we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right. Sounds great, Ben. Thanks for having me on and uh, look forward to next time. All right. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Trofsky. Take care, everybody. 